Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, our Executive Director Joe Goffman speaks with Francesca Domenici, Professor of Biostatistics, Population, and Data Science at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Co-Director of the Harvard Data Science Initiative. They discuss her team's state-of-the-art science that shows air pollution continues to be a public health threat and links air pollution with increased coronavirus death rates. They also discuss her team's recent study revealing that even as air quality improved overall between 2010 and 2016, it did not improve in black communities. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much, Francesca, for joining us for a second time on the Clean Law Podcast. We're making this recording in the middle of July, and I know that you are insanely busy. I think we're all lucky that someone with your gifts is devoting them to making a contribution, in fact, a tremendous contribution to taking on the problems we're facing now, both in terms of the perennial problem of air pollution and the immediate, even more vivid problems of the intersection of air pollution and environmental justice and the COVID-19 pandemic. What I think would be really interesting to hear you talk about would be three articles that you published recently. Reading them, I, I had a combination of reactions. I was both amazed at your ability to deliver complex scientific information that had up-to-the-minute relevance and was actionable. And yet at the same time, I found the articles kind of distressing because in a couple of cases, they delivered some really uh, disturbing news about where we are as a society and where we are in our struggle, of, if you can put it like that, to combat air pollution. Without further ado, I'm wondering if we could walk through your and your colleagues' recent work on the impact of exposure to fine particle pollution and the ill effects of COVID-19, and then talk about another article you and your team have recently posted on perhaps what is even more distressing, the fact that as air pollution has gone down in the last six years, or at least in the period of time between 2010 and 2016, exposure to air pollution in Black and low-income communities has gotten worse. And then I think we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't talk about the EPA's recent proposal not to tighten the fine particle standard, which comes despite the fact that you and your team have done work that continues to demonstrate the harmful, even lethal effects of PM 2.5 exposure among communities of people over 65 at levels below the current standard. So at this point, let me turn the microphone over to you and, and ask you to talk a bit about what your work has uncovered about the relationship between air pollution and COVID-19. Well, thank you, Joe, for your kind words. I mean, first of all, let me say, now I know why I'm feeling exhausted. Uh, and, and then when I also feel demoralized, I think I should give you a call mm. <laughs> and talk to you. Uh, I, you. As far as I'm concerned, I, you, you and I can have an open line. I'll tell you, there are 10 different reasons for that. One of which, and I think this is going to come through in our discussion, you know, a lot of the work that you do and your colleagues do on air pollution can be very abstract and very hard for the general public to 
connect to what is going on in their lives and in society. But your work now intersects with two things that everybody understands at a gut level, the ravages of COVID-19 across the country and across the world, and the problems of racial and economic inequality. And you've managed in a very vivid way to put a spotlight on both of those things using the very sophisticated statistical and epidemiological techniques. So thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And I also have to say, I am so grateful and so fortunate because I have a team of students and postdoctoral fellow and colleagues that are just amazing. And, you know, I give ideas and I direct them, but really, this is really thankful to them and the hard work. And it's amazing actually to see the degree of responsiveness and engagement I get from a lot of the students in the college, actually, at Harvard, they are want to do this work and they want to make a difference. So that is really what keeps me going. So going to the work on long-term exposure to find particular matter in COVID-19 mortality rate. So that started as we were in the middle of, I mean, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, unfortunately, but as this you know, back at end of March, myself and my colleagues were feeling this level of high anxiety and, and thinking about how can we use our data and our skill to help. And there were two things that we made a media connection. One is two years ago, I had the privilege of being a member of a PhD thesis committee of a student in the Department of Environmental Health. Jung Ju Choi, that was mentored by David Cristiani, who is a professor in environmental health and also pulmonologist at Mass General. And in that work, the PHCC is looked at the relationship between fine particulate matter, long-term exposure to fine particulate matter, and acute respiratory distress syndrome. Now, at that time, you know, I, of course, paid very little attention to acute respiratory stress syndrome. I was told there was something really bad, and if you get it, it's going to kill you. But then when it was COVID, immediately became clear that COVID is a form of viral pneumonia, and actually many of the deaths are caused by this acute respiratory stress syndrome. It's a multi-organ failure syndrome. So then I started thinking, hmm, you know, I'm wondering if there is a link between exposure to air pollution and COVID. And so we developed and link and harmonize so much data because that's what we do. We develop new methods for data science and apply to several hundred million of observation to look at the health impact of fine particulate matter. And so I quickly approached my PhD student, Zhao Wu, and a junior faculty member in my department, Rachel Nethery, and I said, well, what can we do with the available data and start to think about whether or not there is a link between fine particular matter and COVID-19? And, you know, we had already data on long-term exposure to fine particular matter for all the United States for the last 20 years, because that's to our collaboration, this is data that we developed. We have previously developed machine learning approaches to estimate exposure to fine particular matter. We have data on socioeconomic status. So we have many data sources. And I'm also extremely grateful to the Johns Hopkins team because they had developed this dashboard where you can download the daily number of total deaths for COVID-19 at the county level. 
So we pretty much put all hands on deck and work nonstop to gather, harmonize, and link the data. And we decided not to look at COVID-19 cases or the spread of the disease just because, first of all, there was so much uncertainty in the data. There is still uncertainty in the number of deaths, but I also felt that the number of deaths were standardized with respect to the population size were a little bit less susceptible to the different testing practices. So we develop a specific hypothesis, which is whether people that are living in geographical area that they're exposed to fine particular matter becomes more vulnerable and have high risk of death for COVID-19 after they contracted the virus. And there are a lot of biological plausibility to this hypothesis because based on the multiple study we have done, there is a strong evidence all around the world that suggests that when you're exposed to fine particular matter for a very long time, they penetrate very deep into your lungs, they source an inflammation system, they can get in your bloodstream. And so I would have expected that, that then if you contract the virus, then it make you less resilient to fight the virus and therefore have a high chance of that. So the, the statistical analysis is in a certain way as sophisticated as it can be to disentangle the different confounding factor and the many challenges in the data. But at the same time, I would say also simple because unfortunately the COVID-19 mortality data is only available at the county level for all the United States. So we did analysis, we did as many as possible sensitivity analysis and robustness check than we could. And we found that if you compare two counties that, let's say, are similar as possible with respect to socioeconomic status, population density, stage of the epidemic, access to health care, percentage of people smoking, you know, you name it. You try to compare two counties that are as similar as possible about pretty much everything we can measure. The county that has a one microgram per cubic meter higher level of fine particulate matter in the last 10 years experienced a increased mortality rate for COVID-19 that range between 8% and 11%. These estimates of the relative risk has been changing a little bit because unfortunately, we are still in the middle of the epidemic. So we are actually rerunning the analysis almost every week because, again, unfortunately, we are still getting deaths. So we posted the preprint, got picked up by the news in a pretty crazy way, actually. To be honest with you, I wasn't even prepared for that. I think this is a very preliminary study. I think the study has one of the main limitations as I said, is this is our ecological data. So there are aggregated data. It could be subject to different types of confounding. But we made it available. We made the code available. And I think what has been really rewarding to me is that this is something I always wanted to accomplish, actually, which was really to start a movement. It started a movement all around the world of looking at this question. Because by posting the data and the code, then the next thing happened is in England, they're doing a similar study. In the Netherlands, they're doing a similar study. In India, they're doing a similar study. And so I think this is actually science progress. I think especially in the context of data from a pandemic that tends to have all kinds of issues. I think that ultimately consistency of evidence 
across many places is something that we really need. So I call this a very evolving area of research. I'm very proud of the work. I think we have done the best that we could considering the data that we have, but clearly, you know, more needs to be done. And I think that I was actually quite happy that it's playing an important role because it seems to me pretty unwise to put it mildly that we are not lowering the national ambient air quality standard at the time of a pandemic that is affecting our lungs. So that's a nutshell about the COVID-19. The work is under review. We actually have a university-wide data science working group on COVID and the environment. And there are so much more work is coming out of this group. And again, mostly by student. And so I think the most important aspect of this and the scientific rigor of this work will increase conditional to our ability to access better data and individual level data. So that's something that we are fighting for and we'll see what's going to happen. You mentioned that the timing or the juxtaposition of what you're discovering in terms of air pollution and COVID with the decision or at least the proposal by the EPA not to tighten the NAC standard is probably a good thing to talk about next, particularly because it seems as if you really made a concerted effort to respond to an objection that some of the scientists, particularly Tony Cox, Scott Pruitt, and now Andy Wheeler, recruited to raise objections to or advance a, a new and ultimately more restrictive approach to looking at the causal relationship between pollution and health effects. It seems to me that when Rewer proposed not to tighten the standard, he explicitly and implicitly relied on the claim that the science suggesting a tighter standard was uncertain. But your paper really seems to take that on and really, at least to my eye, refute Cox's claim that the causal inference test hasn't been passed here. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, this is, I would say, a pretty multifaced and complex discussion. So a few key points. I think it's unfortunate that the EPA Trump administration has been using the argument of lack of causality as an argument to dismiss the enormous amount of epidemiological evidence on the link between air pollution and health. I think before the Trump administration, the process of whether or not lower the national ambient air quality standard has been based on a consistency of evidence which to me in the context of observational data where you can never really assess causality is the best possible approach. So to review for a moment now, let's assume for a moment that absent the pandemic, what the EPA has always done is to review thousands and thousands and thousands of studies that consistently report evidence of a link between short to long-term exposure to fine particulate matter and mortality. When we published our paper in 2017 and we had this conversation, Joe, the, the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, that was a very influential paper because we analyzed 60 million Americans. And again, you know, they raised the criticism and said, well, that 
the statistical analysis of that paper and also in all of the other papers is based on traditional regression method. And the traditional regression approach cannot make statements about causality and therefore we don't have enough evidence and therefore we should not lower the standard. So I personally think that even though I'm very proud of the work we just published last week on causal inference method to look at causality, and we can talk about that in a second, but I think in general, when you are trying to assess a link between an environmental exposure, whatever is air pollution, radon, asbestos, you can name it, and in using observational data, there is not a single bulletproof statistical method that's going to give you the right answer. It just doesn't exist <laughs> because the data are messy and the data are observational. You cannot randomize people to breed high pollution level or low pollution level as you can do in a randomized trial. So my position on this is that the closest way you can get to causality is, again, consistency of evidence across many studies, across also biological studies and across epidemiological studies. Having said all of this, I also thought that, you know, there is a very extensive and rich literature on statistical methods that allow to make statements about causality from observational data. There is a very broad literature, very prolific literature in statistics. Don Rubin, who was a professor in the Department of Statistics, introduced the idea of the potential outcome framework. So then I said, well... If it's really that this is the line of attack that we haven't used a methods for causal inference, well, we're going to do it. <laughs> now, it wasn't that easy because the data we wanted to build on the paper we did in 2017. And so to give you an idea of the data, we are talking about 570 million observations. So try to develop and apply very sophisticated statistical methods to such a giant data set, it wasn't easy. But we were able to achieve that. And the general idea is the following, which is actually, you know, just to try to communicate as easy as possible. So when you're doing the, trying to analyze observational data and our pollution and health, you always have these issues of confounding. So basically... When you take two geographical areas, one is, has a high pollution level, another one has low pollution level, these counties are also different with respect to many other factors. Generally, the counties that are more polluted are the counties that have more people in poverty, there are people lower socioeconomic status, like access to health care. And so whenever you try to analyze this data, you always come across a huge challenge that you need to differentiate and distinguish the effect of pollution or mortality from all these other factors. So if you do a regression model, you basically make a mathematical assumption of how you're going to adjust for this confounder. And so the criticism with this regression model is that if the mathematical assumption about how you eliminate confounding is wrong, your results will be wrong. So the methods for causal inference, and again, I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers in the statistical literature in the last 20 years. What they do is, instead of relying on very specific assumption of, of a statistical model, they somehow match and find counties that are basically similar to each other with respect to all of these factors. 
and then compare these counties. Basically, when the only difference between these counties are the high level of pollution or low level of pollution. So because we have data for all the U.S., and actually we have data for every zip code in the United States for the last 20 years, we have enough rich data to say, for example, if I take one zip code that has a higher level of pollution, I'm going to find another zip code that is absolutely identical to this zip code with respect to as many variables as I want, except the zip code has low pollution level. And so then the only difference between these two units is one is polluted and one is not. And so we use two standard regression approach, the traditional regression approach, and then we use three different methods for causal inference and reanalyze all of the data that was published in 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then we also updated data up to 2016. And the bottom line is there is evidence of a causal link between long-term exposure to fine particulate matter and mortality. But what is even more disturbing is that this relative risk is even higher, actually, if you look only at the people that have been living in geographical location, our level of fine particulate matter below the current national ambient air quality standard. So results that we've been published in the past were not sensitive to the choice of the statistical method. If you use methods that try to assess question of causality, you still find a strong relationship. And the relationship is even higher. This relative risk of mortality is even higher in areas that are in attainment with the national ambient air quality standard. That was a great explanation because in the article, you basically asserted that your latest work had actually bridged what was posited as an unbridgeable divide between the causal inference methodology and these epidemiological or statistical methodologies. And certainly that really was a great explanation of what you meant or what you and your team meant when you wrote that you had essentially bridged or perhaps exposed as a false dichotomy or false dilemma between those two different approaches. And if I have my dates right, I think the comment period on the proposal not to tight the PM 2.5 NAX is still open. So I'm assuming that if not you, then a number of people will be providing expert comment that Mm -hmm. reflects exactly what you and your colleagues have developed and what you just explained. Yeah, no, I know they did. And the journal was kind enough. Actually, I think the deadline was June 29. And the journal was kind enough to post the article on June 26 to allow people to comment. Uh, on yes. It. Yeah. It seems to me in, in reading part of the proposal to leave the NACs in place I mean, some of the arguments that were made there and some of the work that was cited, this paper seemed like a, if you will, a direct repost to that that should make it extremely difficult for the agency to maintain its position were it of a mind to be open-minded about the science. The other thing that you and your team have zeroed in on, and in some ways, for those of us who have worked long in terms of advancing air pollution policy, that is maybe the most distressing, is your work revealing that while generally we're seeing or saw in 2010 through 2016 a reduction in air pollution and generally the improvement of air quality, that benefit seemed to have not only been unevenly distributed, but 
maldistributed in precisely, uh, if you will, the worst possible way, which is areas or communities that are dominated by white populations are seeing the benefits, but low-income communities and communities with black populations are not seeing those benefits. If I read the work correctly, it was mostly observational, but obviously completely sophisticated and well-founded. But the real challenge for policymakers is how to take the observations and translate it into policy action. But I guess before we get there, it would be vital to hear you describe the work in that paper and the conclusions you reached. Yeah. This has been really a different type of work for me, which has opened my mind. And that's why I love what I do so much, because I get to learn from my colleagues all the time. And, you know, I'm not considering myself an expert on data visualization, but this was really something where we want to not only do some statistical analysis, but I felt that in the context of environmental justice and this context of environmental injustice, it was important above and beyond doing sophisticated analysis to work as hard as we could to visualize it. We need to see it. I wanted to be able to see it. And this was a work led by a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. He likes to be called AJ. His, his name is super long on the paper. And also in collaboration with ASRI, which is the Environmental Science Research Institute, which is the most sophisticated research institute in geographic information system. So this is what we did. We, as I mentioned, we have now daily measures of fine particulate matter for one kilometer to one kilometer grid for all the continental United States from the year 2000 to 2016. My colleague, Joe Schwartz, has been estimating these levels, but also there are other colleagues around the world that make this data available. And then we have census data. And so what we wanted to do is, first of all, we just visualize what everybody knows, which is... In the last 20 years, the level of pollution, the level of fine particulate matter in the hair have been going down in this country. And also, by the way, thanks to the rigorous process that EPA has always had informed by science and thanks to the Clean Air Act. Then what we wanted to do is, is asking the question as whether everybody was benefiting of this reduction and fine particulate matter in the same way. So whether or not we were addressing also racial and income inequality in terms of how much pollution you breathe, whether we were the same, whether we were doing better, and when we were doing worse. And what the paper does, we both did a statistical analysis where we tried, we calculate over time the degree of inequality in exposure with respect to the mean over time, but we also visualize it over through different animation. So the concern story, you know, I think, Joe, you read the paper and I'm glad because that means we explain it <laughs> clearly. You mentioned, you know, you described the results exactly right, that as from the year 2000 to the year 2016, even though the levels of pollution in the air have been going down, the areas in this country that are still have high pollution level are predominantly the areas where the black population lives. 
And let me give you just a quantification for a moment, right? So if you take our country in the year 2010, and let's say you only look at geographical areas with pollution level above 8 microgram per cubic meter, which is in attainment, but I would say high levels of pollution. So among the, I will call it the polluted air in this country, in 2010, you will see that approximately 50% were areas were predominantly populated by the black population and 50% that were predominantly populated by the white population. So in a certain way, in 2010, we still have a good percentage of zip code that they were higher polluted, but there was a kind of an equal distribution between the black and the white population. If now you fast forward in 2016, among the zip codes that are still above eight microgram per cubic meter, you know, there will be fewer because, I guess I said, the pollution level have been going down. But among the polluted area, now we have 75% of the area that are populated by the black population and only 25% are the one populated by the white. If you actually look at the even the more polluted zip code, let's say that you only restrict attention to the zip code, they have a pollution level above 10, right? So these are very polluted. Well, in 2010, the great majority of the very polluted zip code in the U.S. are, so more actually almost 93% are the one where our areas predominantly populated by the black population versus 10%. So the progress is uneven. It's not a progress that address, if we are not cleaning the air in an even way for everybody, as the pollution level are going down in this country, as we have a smaller number of geographical areas that are polluted, among the ones that are polluted, we have, they are predominantly populated by the black population. Very similar story is true for the Latino as you can imagine, for example, the most polluted zip codes are the one in California, and they are all concentrated in the area where it's predominantly populated by Hispanic. And similar story is from the different income group. Although what is interesting is that the disparity in air pollution exposure is much more prevalent and stronger among racial community than among income group. The other striking findings that it's very clearly visualized in the paper, that surprised me. The levels of fine particulate matter over time for the areas where the black population with a higher socioeconomic status consistently has been breathing higher level of pollution in this country in the last 16 years consistently higher pollution than a white population of the lowest socioeconomic status. So the richest black population breed higher pollution level than the poorest white consistently in the last 16 years. And you can see it. This is not about fancy statistics. You can see it right there. So I was expecting to see differences. I was not expecting to see the racial inequality and the divide to become bigger over time. I think my guess, we haven't studied that, is that as the pressure to clean it's stronger, people try to find way to continue to pollute in areas that don't have 
the ability to fight against. And so clearly here is the new power plant that it's coming up in the underserved community. So we just posted a paper on the archive and submitted for publication. And uh, we'll see. But I think that speaks to the fact that there is something structurally wrong. And I'm not saying purposely, but there is something structurally wrong in how we are implementing regulation. And I think we need to relook at the system so then we are not only cleaning the air, but we are cleaning the air equally and evenly for everyone. That was an astoundingly clear and astoundingly disturbing description of what you've observed and how it presents. I hate to lure you into the world of policy when you might not want to go there, given the very strong foundation you keep fortifying in terms of the science. But as you know, the Democrat who's running for president, Joe Biden, has been vocal, particularly recently, about including in his policy proposals, a really strong focus on environmental justice. It's mostly in the context of clean energy and climate, as you know. But if he were to be elected, and we could take him at his word that he would prioritize in his administration addressing precisely problems like this, indeed, precisely this problem, what would your advice be from the point of view of what the federal government under a Biden presidency could do about this. I know that his proposal borrowed something from the Inslee proposal to do more detailed mapping of the effects of pollution and climate change. I'm guessing that there is a lot of expert judgment that would support that as an important first step. But is there anything that you've observed that policymakers with their policy hats on should be focusing on to address this problem? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Joe. And, you know, I have to say, this is something I'm learning very, very quickly, because I'm honest with you, I am a data nerd. <laughs> yes, it, it, so, that, that's exactly the right word. It's not surprising, but something to this precise is really unnerving. Yeah. And so, but, you know, what has been really, really an enlightening experience for me is, just because of the work on COVID that got so much press attention, I started to work with Senator Booker on his bill on environmental justice and working with his staffer. And actually, I have been talking to them. It's been really very hard work, but great work, because for the first time, actually, in my career, I was so pleased to see that they are saying, well, we are releasing a new bill on environmental justice. We wanted to rely on science as much as possible. We need you to tell us exactly what everything, every your data means and what we can do about it. And so this is a process of learning, of mutual learning. And actually, this is what is important because I think that we never had enough conversation between policymaker and politician and scientists that bridge this gap. Because for example, I said, well, I think clearly we have a problem in how air pollution regulation are enforced and how states achieve attainment. But I don't know all of the nuts and bolts of the current process. So I can't tell you how to fix it if I don't know or if we don't know together. So we are actually working hands by hands to understand how currently 
So I know at the very high level, and Joe probably you know more than I do, that when the standards are revised and lowered, the states are asked to implement a state implementation plan where they will say, you know, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to meet the standard. But the degree to which they are specifying about what they're going to do about vulnerable community, it's unclear to me. And so what the data are saying is that we have to overcorrect. So in a certain way, what that means is that not only that you are not allowed to pollute more on this community, but you have to go to the extra 10 step in this community to clean the air in this community more than you do in the privileged community. So it's about actually reversing a trend. Again, none of this is surprising. It's just that I think with COVID, we realize how the inequity to healthcare and the inequity in health and the inequity of being affected by COVID and the inequity on breathing polluted hair is really devastating in our country. So going back to you, I don't have the answer because it's actually, the answer will be a result of many months of hand-to-hand work between policymakers and my science team. And so it's so interesting because they are looking at how currently environmental justice is implemented in this country. They come back to us and say, okay, but can you give us this data point? Can you give us this other data point? But then if we do this, what that will happen, right? So it's actually scientific collaboration between policymakers and scientists because the reality is it's never a single simple answer. It's about a process and it's about a process of mutual learning and a process of collectively trying to do the best thing. And as we know right now, we are not in that situation. The question I asked you in particular as a scientist was probably almost unfair. But what's really striking is that certainly under the Obama administration, the EPA worked with information and worked with a commitment to address environmental justice and really tried to navigate the existing legal authority that the agency had, had to navigate the fact that the rubber meets the road, not just in the rules that the federal agency writes, but in the way the rules are implemented by states and really try to focus on elevating the sort of process tools that different communities had and elevating the informational tools that communities had in engaging with how implementation decisions are made. What feels at least like a breakthrough in your work is the level of sophistication and precision and clarity of the information your team provided about this phenomenon about the fact that what everybody knows about the structure of society, what everybody's well-informed intuitions were coming into this can really be revealed by work that's being produced in almost real time with the level of precision that your team provided. And I think that the suggestion you made, which is don't just try to compensate on the process level, but really make it part of policy to address the problem that you and your team and others, of course, have so vividly revealed is really where we need to go next. But I don't think we could have gotten there or can get there without your work. Well, thank you. I think you're very generous, but it's actually interesting that what we're trying to communicate is 
this is why I think for people that listen to this, I hope I will engage them and interest them to study data science and statistics, because the concept here is actually the first concept we teach in every data science and statistics class, which is when you're looking at data over a population, you should not only look at the mean or the average, but you need to look at the spread. You need to look at the variability, at the variance as well. You know, the issue of inequality is about don't just look at the mean because the average is saying that the clean air is going down, but that does not mean that everyone is breathing cleaner air. So it's one of the fundamental concepts of statistics. I think, Francesca, you've done a, just an amazing job of describing eloquently the power of the tools that you use from a scientific perspective and the methodologies you use. And it's amazing what a great job you've done making it all so engageable, even to people who aren't expert in the field. And of course, the results of your work are so compelling and absolutely vital for the public and policymakers to understand and to be able to help people not only understand the results, but understand the underlying science as well as you and your team do is just priceless. So I think we're lucky to have you on as a guest, but the world is lucky to have you and your team doing the work you do. Thank you, Joe. You're really, really generous. And again, I think these are words for the entire team and from student and postdoctoral fellow that are facing tremendous amount of uncertainty about their future and at home and in different time zone. I am so grateful to them and privileged to learning from them because as I explain things to you, they explain things to me in the same way. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that they're all highly self-motivated in their own right, but also derive a certain amount of inspiration from working with you. And as much as I enjoy what I do for a living, talking to you makes me, oh, I don't know, envy what you do, not only for a living, but as a vocation. I can't thank you enough because I think in talking to me, you really imparted a sense of that on top of also explaining some really important observations we as a society need to act on. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.